Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Green New Podcast. I am your host, Patrick Green, back, excited, and joined by my uh, lovely brother, Connor Green. And yes, Con, I, I'm going to be using the uh, adverb lo- lovely for you. So how are you doing today? I'm doing a little bit better after that very nice introduction, Pat. I know I'm I'm, nice I'm very I'm very sweet. Yeah, you know I got to get you hyped up to do a Was great. Does not podcast. match the way you talk about me outside of the podcast, though. Oh no, it's a it's a complete dichotomy. It's a complete complete one eighty. But here, I, I, nothing but good vibes only, man. But I'm yeah. I'm I'm excited for this. I'm excited too. So you ready to get into this? I am ready. Yes, and uh, a reminder for for folks who are about to listen, um, this is a brand new-ish political podcast. It's our second episode, um, and our our aims for this is to provide um, kind of unique, timely content um, in a very, like, fun banter way, so... um, And going into the weeds of a lot of issues, so we're, we're, we're excited to start here. So, Khan... I think uh, what is on the top of everybody's mind who would be listening to this and everybody who would not be listening to this is when the hell are they going to get their COVID checks? Because a stimulus bill, as we were um, talking last Saturday, passed the Senate. And then on Tuesday, uh, the House signed it into law, the American Rescue Act. Khan, are you excited to get your stimulus check? I'm very excited to get my STEMI. I actually have not checked this weekend. I know this is the early. This weekend was the earliest uh, the stimulus checks were going out. I have not checked yet, but I am very excited. Yes, that uh, the fourteen hundred dollars should be deposited. People get them stimmies. Uh, I feel like this will uh, kind of you know curtail the "Where's my stimmy check?" crowd on Twitter for at least a few months. Um, but Patrick it's exciting, just, you know, it's necessary. If you're a new listener no. to the podcast, this is going to be a constant theme. Patrick has a Twitter beef with about half I of his Twitter followers. I, I don't have He will be Twitter subtweeting Twitter. them on I, I, his podcast on a but semi-regular a basis. On Twitter, um, about where's my stimmy check, and the stimmy check is here. You know, I mean, it, it is it is necessary for a lot of people. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people lost wages. A lot of people lost salaries. A lot of people falling behind on rent. So I mean, they're they're much needed. They don't uh, obviously uh, do everything to save everybody, but they're um, you know necessary in in pandemic times. I mean, they might even be necessary. Period. Um, but it's it's good that everybody's getting them. You know, no one's going to turn down fourteen hundred dollars. Everybody, uh, especially how they. Um, the people under the thresholds earning the checks, everybody could use them. So happy that that finally got passed, and uh, it's it's a really really good bill. Um, so and we talked about that ad nauseum. So if you want a full breakdown, you can listen to the previous episode as well. Um, and in the wake of that, uh, President Joe Biden, our forty sixth president, uh, gave his first presidential address live to the nation. I think that was Thursday. Um, when we watched it, and it I just want to like a blur at this point. So it definitely feels like a blur. But I, I watched it alongside of you. Um, do you want to give me your your thoughts on the speech and the announcements within it? So I think he did a really good job. I think one of the most amazing things about Biden 
is that people set so low expectations for him. And this has been, I think, a trend we've seen both, you know, leading up to the Democratic primary in 2020, throughout the primary, and then obviously in the general election. Every time, it's not, I mean, a lot of people on the right, mostly. But there are also a lot of people, like centrists, I, I think some people on the far left, who paint Joe Biden as like a kind of a doddering fool, you know, somebody <laughs> who can barely string sentences together. And then he goes out there and just delivers like a fine speech, like a C plus B minus speech, or d- gives like a C plus B minus debate performance. And he just blows those expectations out of the water. I definitely think he benefits from those low expectations that, you know, it's really bad politics to set such a low expectation for your political opponents if you're the Republican Party, but they consistently do it. And he, I think, also delivers best in prime time. We saw him give a really good acceptance speech back uh, after he won the primary. We saw him give a really good uh, acceptance speech when he actually won the election. And he did pretty well in the debates, um, the two general election debates. And the South last, Carolina. yeah, the South Carolina Democratic primary debate as well. So, you know, I feel like he delivers in big moments. This was a big moment for him. Uh, I think him and Kamala Harris are going to be traveling the country now, trying to like explain exactly what's in the package. And, you know, that's obviously going to be something to watch over the next couple of days. But, you know, this was a really good address. You know, he's very personable. You can tell, you know, he's speaking from the heart, very empathetic guy. And I think, and some people, particularly on the right, criticized him for setting July 4th as the goal for when we can mark our independence from the COVID, COVID-19 pandemic. But I thought it was a really good speech. I thought that was very inspirational. And, you know, I, I, I was very happy to see a president who could get through a speech without, you know, bragging about how great everything is and I alone can fix it and bashing political opponents. It was a refreshing speech. Yeah, it, it definitely felt refreshing. And, and I will say, I don't know, um, I, I know you don't watch Fox News, but Fox News has had like a, a timer for how many days um, Biden had not given a, a presidential address uh, on prime time to the nation. Um, and they were comparing it to other presidents. So like, you know how most major networks like have like- And they're a, not talking a, about Dr. Seuss. Right, in, 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 betu- in between, yes. in between. Those breaking news stories that are of, utter, of, of the matter of greatest importance to their viewers. Right, while, while like all these other major networks will have like um, COVID deaths or COVID vaccinations on their screen, they, they've they been counting down the days for this to happen. And I mean, it is important that, you know, the, the president gets behind a mic and, and addresses the nation, especially in, in like a really perilous, um, kind of confusing, hopeful time during the pandemic, um, and he definitely, he definitely delivered. And and I think you were right that he's been the benefit of such low expectations. I mean, he's not the most gifted uh, speaker. He's no Obama, but like he is, he is not bad. Like he he gives like B a low a kind of high C performances, and we saw that right here. Like you could feel he he talking to you he had really good body language and you felt like there was like some like it was it felt genuine unlike you know trump's speech when he's reading a teleprompter or he has to say something you know about like public importance he just kind of like looks so bored and and just not interested at all like you, you felt it came from the heart with biden and you feel like a lot of this does come from the heart and um, yeah, I, I think Republicans were disappointed because they were lo- waiting for a gaffe. We sat next to our Republican father and his whole expectation, he was giddy that it was going to be a gaffe moment and it wasn't. And it wasn't, 
It wasn't when he gave his inauguration speech. It wasn't uh, when he debated in, in his, the second debate with Trump. Um, I thought he did. I thought he did very well, and it was important. And he did announce that um, all states should be um, vaccinating all groups by May first. So that that that's big. That's huge. I think that says something. Obviously, about, that is advisory and not mandatory. The federal government can right, right, that right, 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 right. Yeah, but still important. Uh, very important. And um, I think it's symbolic and I think it's hopeful about the manufacturing of future vaccine supplies. And at the current pace where we just shattered a record yesterday for 4.5 million new doses given, I think it's very obtainable for all these states to begin eligible, um, giving vaccines to all eligible populations. So it's great. It's great. And they also announced that there will be another government website to find out where you can get your vaccine. Um, if anyone here remembers the catastrophe of the Obamacare website launched in 2014, um, let's hope it does not repeat in that mistake. But um, hopefully that will kind of centralize and streamline so it's easier for people to find these appointments because it's really not right now. Um, but yes, good, good speech. Um, and along those lines, uh, I said that the COVID vaccine effort is going great. We just, um, 4.5 million new doses. And we are now at the point where New York times, uh, the vaccine tracker says that 21% of Americans have at least had one shot, which is, in a, it is an enormous pace. It is so much more than, than I think anybody expected at this point. Um, and it's hopeful. It really is. And it's just going to get better as J&J ramps up its manufacturing um, and it, as its partnership with Merck will help that. And Pfizer and Moderna um, start working through some of these uh, logistical headaches, which they seem to um, have reconciled. So very hopeful all around for the vaccination effort. Um, and, you know, you can feel it uh, right around the corner. But segueing here into the darling of the uh, early COVID outbreak. He was the guy you probably watched instead of uh, Donald Trump telling you to inject bleach. The hopeful uh, contrast, and his name is uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo. As uh, most of you probably have heard buzzing, Andrew Cuomo, uh, his, his ascent has been met with an equally steep descent. Um, basically, Andrew Cuomo has had six accusations of sexual harassments and groping, and he had a huge seven, scandal. Seven, actually. Seven now. It keeps going up. It, it's, yeah. It, it might it, be it eight keeps, by the end of this podcast. It might, be eight, it might be eight by the end of this podcast. And he had the uh, nursing home scandal where he was undercounting deaths to make himself look better. Um, so, Connor... I want you to talk to me about this Andrew Cuomo situation um, and about potential impeachment. So, obviously, you, you kind of covered the, the broad strokes. Andrew Cuomo, for a long time, was fairly a fairly middling governor in, in the United States. He was very unpopular with progressives because he formed an alliance with the IDC which was a group of like centrist Democrats who joined with Republican members in uh, the state assembly in Albany to essentially prevent progressives and Democrats from attaining power, despite the fact that obviously New York is one of the most democratic states in the, in the country. Um, and he was very unpopular progressives for seemingly, while he wasn't directly involved, he seemed to give a green light to that. 
Um, so his approval rating was kind of middling heading into the crisis. And like a lot of governors, and actually temporarily Trump, they all received kind of a rally around the flag effect where their approval ratings went up. Uh, and then I think in large part due to what you what you said, uh, his very, I think, organized and meticulous and sometimes charming press briefings, uh, his he became the media darling of the early COVID era. And he also just served, as, as, as you've stated, as a, such a contrast to Trump. And he seems so serious. But now, obviously, you know, not even a year later, you know, he started to get these very serious accusations. And I believe, so December 13th was the first accusation of sexual harassment. And that came from a former aide um, who accused him of kissing her against his will and kind of long-term sexual harassment and saying kind of very skeevy comments to her throughout the time they worked together. Um, but even before that, I think, or around that time, there were a lot of members of the state assembly who came out and basically said that Andrew Cuomo was threatening their careers and bullying them and that he had created this very hostile work environment in, in Albany and in the governor's mansion. So there are a lot of kind of mumblings of, of the type of person Andrew Cuomo was for a while. And you know, it's finally coming to a head now, which is a great thing. Uh, he needs to be held accountable. Uh, as you mentioned, there is beginning to, uh, t there's beginning to have a uh, impeachment process that is beginning to ramp up against Cuomo. Um, you know, uh, Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand, the two uh, New York state senators or senators representing the state of New York, have called for him to resign. He has very defiantly pushed back on any suggestion that he resign. Um, he's, I think, still wants to pursue a fourth term, which is crazy. Uh, his lieutenant governor right now is Kathy Hotch, I think Hochul, Hochul, if I'm pronouncing that right. She would become the first female governor of New York, which I did not know if Cuomo resigned. Um, or if he's impeached, and we'll get to that in a second. So, talk of impeachment has certainly grown in Albany. Um, there are a lot of, I think the state, I believe one of the state assemblymen has started to try and, and, and get the process going there. And I think it's important to state that the process of impeachment is different in every state. Um, although the, New York, the one in New York very closely mirrors the federal one that we also saw play out twice during the Trump administration, obviously, most recently. Uh, you know, at the end of Trump's term, you know, related to the storming of our nation's capital on January. 6th. Yeah, we're, we're, we're all experts at uh, impeachment trials yes. now. At this point, we're all pretty much, yeah, we're, we're experts at impeachment. But in Albany, in New York, uh, it has the same process in the lower chamber. So it begins in the state assembly. They have to pass articles of impeachment. But instead of sending them to the Senate, where a trial is, uh, is taken, is convened, it is sent to an impeachment court, which includes all members of the state uh, Senate, but it also includes uh, a lot of judges, both federal and state judges, I believe, in the state of New York. And usually it includes the lieutenant governor and the, the, the uh, state majority leader in the state Senate. But in cases involving the governor, because they are you know two and three in the line of succession in New York, they are not allowed to take part in those types of impeachment hearings when it involves a governor. So right now, they're in the very early stages of the impeachment process. They're just trying to start you know, hearings in the lower chamber and trying to get that going. Um, but obviously, it doesn't look like he's going to resign. And it may be that the only way to get him out will be impeachment. 
I don't know if the votes are there yet for impeachment. Obviously, we also know that the state's attorney general, uh, Letitia James, is conducting her own in independent investigation into the allegations. I would imagine if she finds things corroborating some of these allegations, that the calls will grow stronger and that maybe those votes will start to appear. But at the moment, obviously, Andrew Cuomo's political career looks completely derailed. There were some people suggesting that he should replace Biden on the ticket you know, last year, early on in the pandemic. And obviously now we see him just, you know, falling from grace and a, a possible impeachment, another impossible impeachment scandal uh, burgeoning in the United States. Yeah, it's uh, it has been quite the fall from from grace for Andrew Cuomo. Um, it, it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens to him. I mean, obviously, I think um, you and I both agree that he should resign. Yes. Um, for, 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 for multiple reasons, but, um, he, he, he even said in his, um, Friday address that he will not bow to cancel culture is what he is calling the, uh, growing amount of calls for his resignation. Um, and you've had like the most prominent politicians in New York, such as AOC, Chuck Schumer, Kirsten Gillibrand, they are all calling for Andrew Cuomo to, uh, step down. But he, I feel like, you know, just based on glimpses and snippets and uh, anecdotes about his personality, he doesn't seem like the guy to, to bow. It seems like the guy who is very immersed in himself. He's very immersed in the position. So I don't think he will resign based off of, you know, some subjective material. But, you know, he definitely should. Um, it's inexcusable for the things he did um, to women, to the state, to the dying people in the nursing homes. Like it's 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 horrific. And you know, as 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 Democrats, we can admit that he, you know, we're gonna put, we're definitely not gonna do tolerate what Republicans did and tolerate just because but he's a member of the party. I would say that he's early on, you, we talked about how much Andrew Cuomo served as a contrast to Trump early on and during the pandemic. But I would say that uh, if you've been reading some of these articles about him, it, he seems basically like the Democratic version of Trump. He's a bully. He oh, yeah. Really Friendless. He's a, he's a predator. Power yes, hungry. He's a sulking, power-hungry guy. And he's now wielding the, the tool of cancel culture to try which and avoid just, accountability, which is which textbook is just, Trump. See, I don't know if you heard, but when Trump called in to, like, it was one of his first interviews uh, on Fox and Friends after Rush Limbaugh passed, and they asked him about Andrew Cuomo, and Trump, is, I, I guess, at least to my surprise, said that, oh, he thinks it's unfair what's happening to Andrew Cuomo, and that him and Andrew Cuomo, you know, were actually friendly, and that they were, like, New York guys who were getting, like, eaten alive by, by cancel culture. So it seems like kind of wrapped in, like, the same veneer, the same umbrella. It, it, it's interesting, but it's, you know, definitely... Definitely has some parallels, which interesting because they were they were seen as the biggest contrast in the early beginning of the pandemic. So yeah, fame is uh, is fleeting, and Andrew Cuomo hopefully will be held accountable. And if not, like at all else, he I hope he does not um, win again in twenty twenty two. They're actually talking about the attorney general uh, Letitia James running against him in twenty twenty two. Um, as his biggest, most formidable competitor. So that'll be interesting to watch. Okay, Khan, 
It's um your spotlight time here. You have some uh, big bills uh, that have um, passed in the House that are headed to the Senate, which will likely die, but they're very important bills. Um, so I would like you to have the floor and, and talk about them. So, yeah, so one of these bills is incredibly simple. The other one is incredibly complex. I'll start with the simple one. So the House of Representatives passed H.R. 8, and it was, it was a different, I actually don't even know this, what the second number is, but it was a <laughs> set of gun control, very moderate gun control bills that would expand background checks. It actually technically would not make it universal. There would still be some loopholes from what I was reading, which is a little disappointing, but it would expand background checks, and it would try to close the Charleston loophole which is basically a, it's a glitch. I would, I would, I would say it's a glitch in the existing law that, that allows gun sales to proceed if background checks are not completed by the authorities in three business days. You know, that is, the reason it's dubbed the Charleston uh, loophole is obviously because that is how, or one of the, that is how the uh, Dylan Roof, who was the mass shooter in the Charleston shooting back in 2015, was able to get a gun, uh, and it was later found out that he probably would not have qualified to get a gun, you know, in the aftermath of the shooting um, that left several people dead. Um, and you know, obviously, there are probably th there are thousands. I think I've seen estimates that have suggested that thousands of people get guns every year without having these background checks completed. So these would be very moderate tweaks to our gun con existing gun control laws. It's pretty clear that they're constitutional. I mean. It would take a very radical interpretation of the Constitution and the Second Amendment in order to strike these down. Um, and, and and this is something that maybe can give people a little bit of hope that it has a slight chance of passage in the Senate. Unlike most of these other big bills, you know, we talked we've talked about, including the stimulus package that we talked about last episode and earlier in this episode, and another bill I'm going to talk about in a minute, HR one. This actually got eight Republicans to join along with Democrats to pass this bill out of the House, which was a little encouraging. Obviously, Democrats need 10 senators um, to overcome the filibuster in the Senate, and I think that is very unlikely. I think you know Pat Toomey, who actually has participated in very moderate gun control bills in the past, the Manchin-Toomey uh, background check bill back during the Obama administration, and he's retiring, so I think you could probably get him. You could probably get... Uh, maybe Rob Portman, he's also retiring. Maybe Mitt Romney. I mean, he was from, he was the governor of Massachusetts at one point, kind of a moderate liberalish governor. Uh, and obviously he's very anti-Trump. You know, maybe you can get Susan Collins. I don't think you could get Murkowski because Alaska's a big gun state and she's up for re-election. Um, you know, I honestly think the counting pretty much stops there. You know, maybe Ben Sass, who is a little bit more good faith than a lot of his colleagues, joins in but i see this thing as having like a five percent chance of passing in the senate and it would require a lot of cajoling of republican senators and i just don't see that happening and i also just don't see them handing biden these political wins because as i'm sure we're going to talk about with most of these bills these bills are very popular You're expanding background checks universal background checks consistently polls you know well among the american people i think it almost always receives at least 80 percent support i know recent polls have shown it over 90%. So, I mean, these are like very popular, very, very small measures to address gun violence, but it does not have a great chance. In the yeah, yeah. and I think, and I think it's kind of, I mean, you, you kind of laid it out perfectly, but it, it really does not infringe on, or like really put any restrictions on 
people's gun rights. Like it, it literally just fixes and patches this loophole. The existing laws. Sh- yes. Yeah. An existing law. Like it's, it, it, it's like a small thing that just makes total sense. Like th- there are already these federal backgrounds and play uh, checks in place. And like, I mean, it, like it has real world consequences like the Dylan roof shooting. They estimated in 2018 that like this Charleston loophole led to like 4,000 people who should not qualify for a gun for, for criminal reasons, get a, a, a gun. Like it, 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 it's like something that should be like painfully bipartisan. And I, and I think like it, its chances of passage have been reduced because um, we are so focused in COVID and the um, the tragedies of all these mass shootings have not been like in the forefront of our minds in the past year because, you know, no people aren't gathering in public as much. So there aren't these mass shootings. But I know it, it seems like it's such an obvious thing. Um, and I, I've heard anecdotes that Mitch McConnell was actually scared to bring it to the floor because he thought it actually might pass. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think during the Trump administration that made sense because I think that the biggest I think reason why Republicans are opposing this is not because I, you could find 10 to 15, at least 10 to 15 Republican senators who actually support these things in reality. But they don't, A, they don't want to hand, they don't want to risk upsetting the kind of most fervent pro-gun part of their base. And B, they don't want to hand Biden a political victory. I mean, again, you're talking about how COVID is dominating the news cycle, and rightly so. But they, not a single Republican voted for the COVID relief package, which is also very popular in the House or the Senate. They tried to make it as politically painful for Democrats as possible to give them the narrowest of margins. They tried everything in their power to try and stop the bill from passing. And I think that's largely just because they don't want Biden to be able to you know, pass popular things. We saw the same thing happen during the Obama administration. It's not really principled. It's more, the opposition it, for these types of bills. Now, some of the bills are different, um, but for this bill in specific, and I think for the COVID relief package, have more to do with the fact that they don't want to hand Biden political victories than, and, and, and the fact that you know, Republicans want to be back in power and they can realistically get back in power very soon than you know, any type of ideological objection to the bill. Right. So now we're going to talk about the more complex uh, bill, uh, more I take a deep breath more consequential. Yes, more consequential. Well, there are two bills. So be- before I get to HR one, there's a second voting rights bill, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It has not passed the House yet, I believe. Uh, it would simply restore. It would try to restore the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted back in 2013 when the Supreme Court issued a ruling in Shelby County versus Holder. Which got rid of Section Five, the preclearance procedure of the Voting Rights the Voting Rights Act. That bill, I think, has a much better chance of passing than this much more comprehensive bill. I think it's called the For the People Act, but it's HR one. Um, they passed HR one, I believe, in 2019 as well after Democrats, you know, swept into Congress into the House of Representatives. So this bill is a sweeping voting rights, ethics, and campaign finance bill passed along party lines in the House of Representatives. That is kind of the broad overview. Some of the things this law this law would do, and it would do a lot. So, for in terms of voting rights, it, it basically it would set to create minimum standards for the states to follow on voting rights. It would restore the rights of all formerly incarcerated ind- individuals or former felons. Currently, the Supreme Court in Richardson versus Ramirez, I think that was a case in 1973, 1973-1979, um, it ruled that states have the ability to decide what they want to do with. They, they can disenfranchise former felons 
voting rights, and they have leeway to set that process. Um, but this law would this would reenfranchise the nearly five million Americans who are currently disenfranchised because of you know former felonies. Uh, th- th- that those people are disproportionate people of color. The bill would make it harder to remove voters from the rolls. I'm sure if you like politics and listen to this podcast, you've heard the the term you know purging the voter rolls before. Uh, this would make it a lot more difficult for states to do that. They couldn't do it just because you didn't vote in a previous election. It limits the reasons they can do it. Um, uh, it would expand vote by mail. Obviously, we well, saw. S- side note on the purging thing, real quick. I I worked at the um, North Mecklenburg County um, elections for uh, which is a, 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 a one of the biggest counties in North Carolina. And I said to um, one so of uh, my boss who, who worked in um, who, who worked like high up in the voter registration department, I was like, so what's up with you guys purging people? And he got highly offended. He's like, bro, we don't purge people. We just, you know, Get take them, them off the rolls. rolls if they've been inactive for two cycles. And I was like, well, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Like, w- doesn't that restrict their ability to to vote? Like, doesn't that, like, create an unnecessary hurdle? And then he gave, like, some, like, cop-out bureaucratic answer um, about the complexity of uh, our database and keeping so many people. But, yeah, it, se- it seemed a little bit like 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 BS. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's that's part of that. Yeah, and it would create an automatic voter registration system. Um, it would be, I think, it'd be opt out instead of opt in. Some states have opt in systems. I know North Carolina has an opt in system where if you go to get your driver's license or your your permit, you can they ask you if you want to register to vote, and obviously you can say yes or no. Uh, I think in under this bill, they would register you to, to vote, and you could obviously go in and you know unregister to vote. Um, but you know, so that it would it would make it easier for people to become registered to vote. It would if you may, had contact with a lot of these federal and state agencies, it would do that. It would expand vote by mail, which we saw explode during the pandemic. It would expand curbside voting, which is I think not talked about enough. I did exit polling for one of my political science classes in college, and one of the things that I was fascinated by was curbside vote, voting. I'd never seen it before, and people would just pull up to the curve, and it's usually elderly people and people with disabilities. Um, they pull up to the curve. The election workers would go out there, hand them the ballot, kind of like stand around to, to make sure the person was filling it out. And then they would take it back in. And I don't know why I'd never thought, you know, how good of an idea that was. Um, and I was just like, I was I was almost floored by, you know, how simple it was. And I was like, wow, this could make it easier for you know disabled people and some elderly people to vote. And obviously during COVID, curbside voting you know, has an additional benefit of allowing people to potentially stay in their car. A huge additional They're high benefit. risk, huge additional benefit. So it would expand curbside voting, and it would also allow for prepaid postage on mail-in ballots. Currently, a lot of states have it where you have to pay for your own postage for mail-in ballots, and that creates a, a barrier for lower-income individuals. This would require states to pay for the postage. So that would, it is another way it would expand vote by mailing and make it easier. Would try to expand early voting and vote times, and 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 reduce waiting times for voting by trying to give more funding for the states to open up more polling places, hire more poll workers, and generally try to cut down wait times. So I think the goal is thirty. The maximum of, of thirty minutes is the goal. Obviously, that's not you know it's it's going to be hard to actually enforce, but. 
It would try to cut down polling wait times at the polls. And it would also implement an independent redistricting committee in every single state across the country to try and get rid of partisan gerrymandering. There are some states that already have these commissions, but with redistricting coming up, you know, soon, I mean, 2020 is a year, a census year, obviously. So redistricting is going to be happening, you know, and, and the process is probably already started. I'm not super familiar with when exactly it starts. And I know there were some delays because of COVID, but you know, states, a lot of states allowed the state legislatures to draw congressional districts. And that oftentimes creates a political incentive to partisan, partisanly gerrymander the districts to give your political party an advantage. This would put in place independent redistricting commissions to try and make it more fair at a very uh, important time to do that, because obviously we're heading into another potential era of redistricting, another decade of that, at least. Um, and just a quick note, and there's a lot of people who, who point to this particular section and say that this section is unconstitutional. They say that, you know, the Constitution explicitly gives powers to the state legislatures to, you know, run elections. I would like to point out, and I, and I think it's a bad faith argument because it's ma mostly made by Republicans who just don't want to expand voting rights and they want to make it as hard for people to vote as possible. And they see a political interest in, in essentially making having as few people vote as possible. But the Constitution also includes an election clause in Article 1, which gives Congress the power to regulate the time, places, and manners of federal elections. Obviously, all of these elections have federal elections happening, all these elections, midterms, presidential elections, even off-year elections, like in places like Virginia, they have federal races on there. The Enforcement Clause of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees against racial discrimination in voting, also would give Congress potential the, 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 the authority to do this. And the Republican Clause, which guarantees a Republican form of government for all Americans, would also potentially give them a, a legal justification for that. So I think it, it is very, con that, that part, the voting rights part, is very constitutionally sound. They're all much needed reforms. I think it would make it a lot easier to vote and it would probably increase the number of people who can vote and that would be good for small d democracy. And, you know, obviously we are in favor of that. The second part of this <laughs> is- There's the, more. There's, so ethics, we'll, we'll do ethics last. Ethics is just a whole, I'll do a very quick synopsis of ethics at the end. But the second part is campaign finance. This part is a little bit more legally dubious, and there are some potentially, I, I would say, concerning provisions for the campaign finance section. Um, they have been critiqued even by the ACLU, the American Civil Liberty Union. Um, I'm sure you knew what that stood for, Pat. I was just saying that for the listeners. Um, I didn't think you were saying that for me. I mean, I wouldn't I put didn't. it past you, but yes, yeah. I, I was not doing that. So it, there is one provision that would require organizations that spend more than $10,000 in an election cycle to disclose the name of all of their donors unless they can go to court and prove that those donors would be harmed if the disclosure was actually followed through with. Obviously, I think you know a lot of organizations have a vested interest in keeping their donors um, uh, private. There are some constitutional concerns about political speech and you know free speech rights that go along with this. And then... Uh, the ACLU basically ran through a scenario that I found horrifying personally, that, you know, it would be feasible under this framework for, you know, a, a conservative group to ask for the for request the donors of the ACLU for a particular election cycle. It's $10,000 in an election cycle. It's not overall. So I just want to clear that up. So they could ask for the donors that they would have to give them the donors if they if they failed in court, which the court is, is going to pretty much interpret it. It's going to be it's going to be a crapshoot. It's very vague. 
the protections there. So if they, they could require the disclosure and then like the Republican Party or a Republican candidate could run an ad featuring prominent names on that donor list, you know, on in a commercial and say that these are the people trying to fund, you know, this political activity. And it could lead to, I think, some scary stuff. Um, and again, there are some constitutional concerns with that for free speech uh, when, in, in terms of free speech rights. But, you know, I mean, the idea of increasing disclosure requirements in general doesn't bother me. I do think that the main concern of the ACLU on that provision is that the courts are going to interpret the exemption very narrowly and that that could end up having some ramifications for A, their donors, the ACLU's donors, and B, more broadly, free speech and political speech in America. Um, the second provision, major provision of the campaign finance um, portion of this is it will um, make it even, it will strengthen the requirements of, we seem to have a special guest dog joining um, on this episode. Um, if you want to mute yourself, Pat, that might be a good idea. Um, but uh, so the, 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 the provision, uh, the other provision that the ACLU took issue with was it strengthened uh, restrictions against uh, foreign nationals being able to participate in paid advocacy. And this provision, I think, seems very innocuous, but it doesn't include an exemption for like DACA recipients, people receiving temporary protected status, you know, people who are on a pathway to citizenship or who are here legally. And even just undocumented immigrants in general, they have a vested interest in American politics and making it harder for them to participate in paid political advocacy could pose a problem. I mean, and these people are even more touched by government than a lot of actual American citizens. So I, I think that that, it, it, that provision is a little you know, I, I think they should probably just get rid of that provision personally. I think that that just, you know, we already have not this, it's, it's not always enforced, but we already have laws in the books that somewhat regulate what foreign nationals can do in paid advocacy and how they can participate in our elections. I don't know why that has to be part of this bill, which is trying to make it easier, generally trying to make it easier for people to vote. The last part of this bill is it, it, it is ethics reform. It would require, also it would, it would match public funding for any election contribution under a certain amount. I didn't get into the nitty gritty of that, but it would essentially have the federal government match certain political donations from small dollar donors, which is a good thing, I think. I'm sure you agree with that, Pat. Um, I do. The yes. ethics requirements would, it would pose more new ethics requirements on Congress, but it would also do it for all federal judges. So currently the Supreme Court justices are the only federal judges who do, are not subjected to a code of written conduct. This would fix that. I, I don't know. It's not a loophole, but it's it would it would change that. Uh, it would increase recusal requirements. Obviously, when you think recusal, I think a lot of people, or at least I, immediately went to when Jeff Sessions recused himself from the <laughs> Russian investigation. So and it would I, make it every time just, I hear the word recusal, it's I just see Jeff Sessions in my mind. Yes, which is like I, I really wish I didn't see Jeff Sessions yes. in my mind. Like I, I yes. would be a lot more peaceful without it. But you know, yeah, I, I'm sure it would increase those requirements uh, for certain federal officials, including I, I would imagine the Attorney General, although it didn't say specifically in my research. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the broad strokes of the bill. Again, it's, it's a sweeping bill. Most of it is excellent. Again, it would make it easier to vote generally. It would try to get rid of barriers for people to vote and stay on the voter rolls. It would it would bolster ethics in the United States government, which I think is, is, is always a good thing. And most of the campaign finance uh, provisions are also pretty good, although I think you could probably just get rid of that section and it would be an even better bill. Um, 
you know, uh, it, it, it's overall obviously a very good bill. And just like HR8, and just like any good bill that can't be passed through budget reconciliation, it will die an unceremonious death in the Senate unless Democrats decide to gut the filibuster or even just get rid of filibuster for the for the specific law and these voting rights laws, including the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, to try and you know make it easier for people to vote and protect the franchise, which I think they should obviously do. I think that we both think they should both get the filibuster, period. But at the very least, do it for these voting rights bills, because protecting the franchise is the most important part in, of small-D democracy. It's the most fundamental, basic right in our country. And allowing that to erode under democratic control in Congress and the presidency makes my heart die. So see, 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 I mean, that's why um, I had uh, you I had on speaker the other day with you in the background. We called Joe Manchin's office and we we talk. If you want to hear about our Joe Manchin slander, you can listen to last week's episode. But uh, we called Joe Manchin's and future office. episodes. Like, I'm sure there will be. Plenty yes. Of Joe oh, Manchin's oh, my gosh. There. Yes. But like, yeah. So we come for the in-depth policy analysis. Stay right. for the Joe Manchin. Slander. Right. Right. No, I mean, like, you know, all these pu- like the, these really massive bills and like we're debating like all the weeds and like the specifics of them and. And it's it's long winded, but it's important. Um, they all die anyway because of Joe Manchin. So we called his office, and I said, "Hey, man, you know, got the filibuster." And I'm thinking about making it a weekly thing. But then we also said, um, "If not, if you do not got the vil- uh, filibuster, um, could you just do it for this one uh, bill for the HR one? Because voting rights are um, obviously the, the 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 tenet of a small D democracy, as you said, Con and." Very important for all this other stuff to actually be possible, and that so that uh, the will of the the American people and the populace is actually heard, and that these voter suppression laws cannot pass. So it's an excellent job, Con. You know, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't tasked with like the full full blown research on that, and you know, you did, you did good. But now we're going to my spotlights, and my spotlights. Um, I, I have to talk first. So I'm a big transportation guy. Um, I, I, I lived abroad. So just a little bit of context on this. He pretty much forced me to read uh, Better Buses and Cities. Better Cities. Better a city. book about public transit, Better Buses and Better Cities. Um, reads- you know, I, I, I can't say it is a thrilling read. There's a lot of good information in there, and I think it really does hammer home the importance of public transit. But again, uh, it is not – I did not find it interesting. But, yeah, it reads like a transcript. I can't even tell you who the author was. It's it's like it, 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 not transcript. It reads like a thesis. Like like it does. Like a uh, a good thesis with with like you know you'll see like the intersectionality of like um, different sections, including climate, uh, in race inequality uh, it, within just uh, public transportation. Um, but I'm very I I studied abroad in in Europe. And I became very um, partial to the idea of high-speed rail lines, which, you know, we could we could take a high-speed rail any in any part of the UK and be there uh, within within hours. I could take the channel um, and and go underwater and be in Paris um, in the same time that it would like take me um, to get from Waxhaw, where I currently live, to like Winston-Salem in North Carolina, which. For, you know, if you don't live in North Carolina, it's about an hour and a half. So, like, high-speed rail is very possible. It would, you know, do a lot of things um, so that it's, it's you're putting more people 
Um, less people have to fly by plane, which is like one of the worst uh, CO2 emissions um, in the world. Less people would have to take cars. You could put more people um, in a in, in a high speed uh, high speed rail, get there fast, efficiently, even more efficiently than taking a car. Um, and 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 it's uh, not nearly as expensive to board a high speed rail as it is to take a plane. Um, so like there's a lot of benefits it can connect you to any part of the country and a lot of people um, recently especially in the gen z community which we are members of um not by choice but but by birth um they have been starting to imagine a future in the united states where they match other countries efficiency in high-speed rail so you, the, the, they've made like a basic um like it's some some like like artists drew up a map of the United States showing like different rail, like rail lines going from like New York to Florida, uh, New York to California and like intersecting like across basically most of the country. If like you wanted to go to, if, if you wanted to um, from Raleigh, um, you could take the blue line, uh, which is like from New York, but you wanted to go to Calif uh, California, you could ride up to New York, get off at of New York, get off on a different line. But it, 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 it's, it's cool. I mean, the United States um, has really been f f way behind in this, um, and it, it could have really good implications like I laid out. Anyway, it's kind of been like hidden in a pipe dream. Like I, I go to sleep every night. I, uh, you know, do do like a, a prayer that, that, you know, somehow this, this will happen. Even though I, I have a quick no question for you. Yeah. If you ever were elected to to office, would you swear in on the Better Buses and Better City book? I definitely would not. I I, I mean, <laughs> like I, I, I said, it's it, it's it's an informative book, but it's not, you know, it's it's not the it's not known for its artistic uh, qualities. But um, yes, this map. And it's just been kind of like in, in Twitter circles and people make jokes about it. It's funny. But then Secretary of Transportation, who, um, you know, you might know as Pete Buttigieg, former mayor of South Bend, uh, Democratic uh, presidential candidate in 2020. Um, in, in some other Twitter circles, he's known as like the least guy you would want in your nightmare uh, blunt rotation. But. Pete Buttigieg, um, Secretary of Transportation, tweeted out a picture of this freaking map and said, Gen Z is dreaming big, so should we. And I turned to one of my coworkers on Friday when he tweeted this out, and I said, he better not be playing with my heartstrings because I have been, I have been hurt before, and this would be like the cruelest thing. But I'm glad, like, I mean, in seriousness, to get this into, you know, the Overton window, and I don't even think it is, just to get somebody who, like, is in the highest post of this uh, federal transportation tweet about it was pretty cool. So, you know, th there goes, that, that. that's just kind of like a, a spotlight I wanted to highlight. Not not that I think anything's immediate, not that I think anything's even, like, kind of, like, near-term immediate, but it's cool that they're thinking about it, you know? I, I, I think... Um, I think I would love to live in the United States in my lifetime where I can just, you know, get on a, a, a high speed rail in Charlotte and get to California in like eight hours. Like that would be that would be dope. And yeah. So, um, you know, cool. Good. Good for Pete Buttigieg um, for doing that. My second spotlight more policy driven. Jamal Bowman, um, who is a congressman out of New York, he is uh 
now I think an honorary member of the squad, very progressive. He's a uh, public educator, career educator. Um, he's very a uh, bold, ambitious man, and he has some really good ideas. And his um, his new proposal that he's about to un- unveil is a 1.19 trillion proposal, and it is for um, making uh, education and making schools um, more climate friendly, and just completely investing in uh, education in general. So part of his plan is $250 billion to retrofit schools for climate change. So that's like adding solar panels and, and having batteries and uh, remediating lead and asbestos, um, which cause cancer um, from classrooms. I mean, the EPA estimates that one-fifth of cl- all classrooms in the United States have like an unsafe level of, of radon in the classroom, which is insane. You probably know radon is like the, the, the chemical that people come into your apartment and they had like leave a little like when we when we lived in an apartment complex in Charlotte they would leave like this little testing kit so it tests radon it would just sit in the kitchen and I had to try to get my cat not to knock it over um and they test for 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 radon levels in your apartment but it's insane like it, it is very harmful it can cause um really bad uh, air pollution um and it's a very you know harmful chemical for humans and in one-fifth of freaking classrooms, there's an unsafe level of radon. So they would invest in more um, testing, more eradication methods to get radon out of the classroom. That's like, that's, that's, that's insane to me. Did, did you know that, that that one-fifth of classrooms, Con? That's one very, that's very concerning. I guess, but, I, and you haven't gotten more into the details yet, but what do you think the chances are that, I know the Biden administration wants to also... Uh, undergo an actual infrastructure week after it had become a running joke in Washington during the Trump years. What do you think of the chances that the Biden administration would actually, A, put this in an infrastructure bill, and B, that it could actually feasibly pass? Because I think so, you, could do, but you could do infrastructure through budget reconciliation, I would imagine. So I think it actually, um, I think like it would probably be a watered-down version of this bill. I think like the retrofitting the schools for climate change and like getting the lead and uh, asbestos out of out of classrooms could actually be um, something that even I could foresee some Republicans signing off, off on as long as there's like some trade offs in the infrastructure. Republicans bill. are very pro radon. I don't know about that. Pat. Sure, but, but radon like, might might. It, it's not like, this is not like a like a, a politically like sexy conversation. Like it's not like you know uh, Republicans have to support everything against like you know gun control or anything like that it's it, it's something that like you know you can fit this in an infrastructure bill give them more money to, to buy it to build highways or something i don't know what they like I, 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 you know weird things and and maybe maybe you can get you know some of this retrofitting in there now i, I will say like part of this bill i was going to go over um like it's going to quadruple title i funding schools from like 14 billion to 60 billion which is like really important because title i schools are like where a certain amount of um, the students in that school are in, in are in poverty, um, so, so I, I think, doubt that. I, I think, and, and this is just a little nitpicky thing. I'm, I'm Title One schools. It's I the Roman numeral, which is one. I, you can call it Title I schools, but like if it was Title Two, would you say Title II? I mean, okay, so Title One, Title I, whatever. Tomato, tomato. You probably more people call it refer to it as Title One, but yes, it has it has that provision where it would increase the um, funding, um, and then there's 250 billion to add more schools, teachers, etc. 
doubt significant i i guarantee you i mean that, that i don't even see why that would be part of the infrastructure bill but that that part which is a, a large portion of this bill would not pass but for the retrofitting of the schools for climate change they could estimate that that could create a hundred thousand jobs through bowman's proposal which that's a lot of jobs and i think that's what you know biden is setting out to do with uh with his climate plans and initiatives and the infrastructure bill is to create a lot of green jobs to replace some of these um these these greenhouse gas emitting jobs like so um these are this is a really good proposal and i was gonna get into like a conversation about asbestos in school um in in schools and asbestos in general so i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about that real quick because you know everyone knows that uh, asbestos is like you know harmful and like it can cause cancer and cause asbestos. lung cancer yeah Sorry to be but funny. but a side note on that they have researched and asbestos actually um is being used as a climate change solution i mean it's obviously harmful for humans but they think it's like one of the best carbon sinks. So like it can store a lot of carbon. And now climate change are researching asbestos as a potential um, solution to hold the enormous amount of carbon that is in the atmosphere now. So that's an interesting thing to think about as like, you know, it's making a comeback. It's changing its brand as being like this harmful chemical. So it's look rebranding. Out. Look out for Avestis in, in twenty twenty one. Much like BP after the oil spill, it is rebranding. Watch out for the comeback <laughs> of asbestos. So, it Pat, I, I guess one quick question before we move on. Again, I, was, I, I, I noted this a little bit earlier, but do you think that they could get this done via budget reconciliation? Because, again, it is a budgetary matter. It isn't you know, one of the other requirements of the bird rules. It can affect the budget more than 10 years down the road. I don't know exactly how long this would take. I think I, I could definitely conceive at least getting some of this passed via budget reconciliation, which would yeah. allow you to circumvent the filibuster and wouldn't you wouldn't need any Republican support. So True. do you think that that's a feasible alternative? I think not now, like not in the media future, just because they just passed the two trillion dollar package. And, you know, some Democrats and some moderate Democrats, including yours truly, Joe Manchin, were very like wary about passing something sticker that big. shock they got a big especially sticker shock this is more videos. targeted um and they just sent a bunch of money to schools i doubt it right away um but in the future and maybe part of this through infrastructure bill which uh could be done through budget reconciliation i could see it but definitely in the future as people become more aware of the effects of climate change and there's like increasing uh horrible weather natural disasters and heat waves and a lot more calamity happening. I could definitely see this passing altogether. It's a great, it's a great bill. It's a great bill, and Jamal Bowman should be um, lauded for it, and it should be talked about more because it is one of the most ambitious uh, bills I have seen. Um, and he was an educator, so it makes sense. But it, it covers a lot, and it's 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 it will be impactful on multiple fronts. So definitely look out for that. But now, Khan. We are moving into our debate section. Are you ready for this? I, th I think I'm ready. This, this, is, this is a new segment we're trying out because last week we tended to agree on everything. So we're going to try to find some areas of disagreement. We'll see how that goes. Because Connor and I agree on too many things. I mean, we actually, we, we have some disagreements. But the we things like... we disagree about and argue about are so <laughs> inconsequential. They are. Nitpicky that it would probably drive our listeners to insanity. 
But I think people like disagreement, right? They like to hear debates. So right now, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about the Republican Party. So the Republicans lost the presidency. They did not get enough ground in the House in this past election cycle to get the House. And they lost the Senate by the most narrow majorities. They gained it some state legislators. But there's a real divide, especially in the wake of um, the Capitol Hill riots and the false claims of election fraud. Um, there's a real divide between members in the Republican Party and Republican voters about Trumpism. About so I think we have, might have a first disagreement in in the introduction, but I'll let you continue. No, 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 no. Air, air, air your grievance. I don't think there's a lot of disagreement. I think a lot of people have been really kind of hyping up this narrative of a civil war in the Republican Party. But the civil war is already won. If you look at almost any poll for the 2024 election, I know it's very far out. Donald Trump absolutely destroys everybody else. I think the, the, the CPAC straw poll, which take that with a massive grain of salt, had Trump winning by about 30 points over the second place guy, which was Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis only came in second place. I think he got about 20% of the, the support in the straw poll. Okay. Because okay. they were doing okay. CPAC. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You said take it with a grain of salt. Yes. But like, you have to like this is like a boulder-sized grain of yes. salt, right? Like, it's a pretty large all, grain of salt. Who's going to a Republican convention during a pandemic in freaking Florida the people who are there are the most Trumpian, the most right-wing, the most conservative that I can even conceive of. So take that yes. with a boulder size. Take that with a boulder size. That's Trump why and that's the same thing with Ron DeSantis doing so well. He got 74 million votes. It's the second most votes any presidential candidate's ever gotten in American history. He's still very popular among Republican, uh, Republican rank-and-file voters. And even more than Trump, Trumpism is even more popular than the man himself. The style of politics is, you know— Brashness is a nice way of putting it, but his assholery is very popular among Republican voters. And you can it see is. that reflected in what Fox News and conservative media is deciding to cover in the early stages of the Trump or the Biden administration. I don't I mean, think there's is. actually a civil war. I think there's it's like 90 percent of Republicans support Trump. Ten percent of Republicans don't don't like Trump and are open and vocal about it. And that 10%, I would say 7% of those just went to Biden and are going to throw their lot in with the Democrats for the foreseeable future. And maybe 3% are trying to actually fight a civil war against the overwhelming majority of their elected officials and actual rank and file voters. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think like it's a, a, seismic, uh, a seismic divide, but I think you can kind of see it reflected a little bit um, within some House and Senate members. But it's again, it's like a lot of these Republicans who would have issue with it don't say a lot. They just kind of know that Trumpism is probably the best. And way that's to the top just that's, that's just it, I don't know, it might be worse if you actually understand what Trump is doing is wrong and you don't say anything. I think some of some elected officials like Tommy Tuberville just don't know better. I mean, they're just not he's just not a very he's not he's not the brightest bulb in the tool shed. And he's not the sharpest crayon in the box. He's trying to be nice <laughs> about that. He didn't know the three branches of government, I believe. Um, yeah, I, I, I would kind of be alarmed if I had a sharp crayon, to be honest. Um, but they have they have crayon sharpeners, I believe. I think that's a thing. What? I should have put that in there. They sharpen no, like, you, like the same way pencil sharpeners. You sharpen the crayons. Yeah, but you, that's to like get like the 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 skin so that the lead pokes out. You're just like 
you would be shredding more crayon, so it's like you more dull. It's well because sometimes like if you if you remember using crayons, it becomes dull, becomes like a little like bold like shape. You can make time? it sharp. Yes, you can make it more pointed. Okay. A more pointed tip. But move on. Okay. No, we'll have an ep- we'll have a whole debate on that next episode. Yes. But um yeah, I mean I think I, I mean I think Trumpism is not gonna go anyway go away anytime soon. I think uh you know, I, I think like there's nothing that um uh, but okay, refocusing. Um, the Republican brand of Trumpism, which is so appealing, is it's all wrapped in cancel culture, right? Like it's all it's all this like war against this thing that is really not well defined, but like people are somehow aggrieved by, and they can't really name it. And Trump is so genuinely like grieved aggrieved by it that they feel like this like he's a kindred spirit almost, like like they they feel like he's genuinely upset as them as they are but republicans are mad about dr seuss they're mad about mr potato head not having a penis like like they're mad about all these things and they really don't have solutions to stop it right like like i i even listened to the bulwark i think it was connor your your, your podcast you listen to which is a conservative it's like the podcast. only anti-trump like major po- i mean the lincoln project that they've been they've been going through the ringer pr they're canceled, yes, they're canceled they're canceled they're canceled, they're canceled. Um, but, yes, but the uh, bulwark is like the last one right anti-trump and conservative they were media. Uh, this i might not even been the bulwark honestly it could have been the ezra klein show i don't know i heard it somewhere, somewhere. but the, somebody asked tom cotton a question about okay you're mad about cancel culture what are you going to do about it and then he just sat there and said uh uh because uh, they're not really doing anything right they're not like enacting policies that would cancel cancel culture like cancel culture is really like not defined and it's also shrouded in hypocrisy right like like republicans are like trying to cancel target right now because in texas they're not uh, allowing the mask the complete unmasking uh mandate of greg abbott to go in effect and you still have to wear masks and target to get in in, te- in texas and they're trying to cancel texas or target well target yeah so they're not trying to cancel texas yes texas is not trying to cancel itself um but like republicans try to cancel stuff all the time like 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 they, they get a colin kaepernick to- comes to mind Colin Kaepernick takes a knee, and they want to cancel the NFL. Like they just—they're offended by a black man standing up for social justice. Like it's—it's—it's weird because the people who are like, "Oh, cancel culture, cancel culture," like they're doing a lot of the canceling. And their solution to the Dr. Seuss cancel thing is to buy the racist books that Dr. Seuss wrote. From the private, not a very coherent argument. It's not a very coherent ideological. That is uh, canceling the books. So like, it's weird. They're giving money to the thing they're mad at, but they don't know what they're mad at. So they're just hoping that it falls under this umbrella as like this liberal deep state ploy that somehow AOC is going into the homes of parents reading dr seuss to their kids before bed and ripping green eggs and ham out of their hands and making kids cry like i don't understand can i take a stab at this just a quick stab i think generally conservatives are frightened by the changing of america whether that's you know the changes in racial demographics religious like the christians are beginning to wane in numbers and influence uh the country's becoming more diverse you know it's 
you know, they are, I mean, it's a lot of it is based around like race and gender and more people are having a say in the country. And I think that's making a lot of conservatives and Republicans uncomfortable. But also I would say that I read an article, I think it was in NBC News, and it basically said that Republicans are the sado-populist party. Are you familiar with sado-populism? Enlighten me. So sado-populism is like a very simple, simple political formula where like a, a political party or a political figure or like a politician essentially makes up an imaginary enemy. They say, immigrants are taking your jobs. They say, cancel culture is destroying your country. Absentee et ballots are stealing your election. Yes, uh, fraudulent elections. We're not actually losing. It's There's just, a caravan cheating. coming. The, yes, and yes, yes. Take your job. Republicans do that all the time. There are numerous examples. The second part of it is you actively work to undermine the interests of your core base, which in this case is for the Republican Party is working class whites. You vote against the COVID relief package. You try. You 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 dole down even before Trump. You dole down all of Obama's legislation. You try to you know make it as watered down as possible and as hard to pass as possible and as divisive as possible. So you actively make that base's life worse. You take the evidence of their life getting worse and them not getting help. And you say, the reason why that's not happening is because of that imagined enemy. And repeat. No, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's 100%. That is what the Republican well, Party Republican Party is like. an obstructionist party. I mean, like, throughout the Obama administration, it was never like, oh, what can we agree on? It was nobody nobody negotiate with Obama directly. No one even, like, weigh in. And if we all just line up and obstruct him, we can get power back because, you know, the Democrats will look like they're doing nothing. When in reality, there is institutional constraints just as a filibuster that lets the minority rule the majority. So... I agree with that, but that's but that but that but that's like what republicanism has kind of been reduced to. I mean, it wasn't all great, like anyway. I mean, it, when I say it wasn't all great, it was mostly not great, and and you know, deeply like deeply uh, disturbing in some aspects. But right now, there's like there's no policy that comes out of cancel culture. I think the best example of policy that came out of cancel culture was when Trump was had the RNC and he was trying to give his platform of, of what uh, he was running on. And it was like like three things. And it was like very vague. They didn't he Trump never really cared about policy. He couldn't care less if like, you know, they enacted more gun control or people got two thousand dollars stimulus checks. But he really wanted to win and he really was genuinely aggrieved about people not liking him. But the one thing that he he, he put in this cancel culture framework is he was trying to make it so that educators um, would take on the 1776 project, which was in response to the 1619 yeah, the project. The 1776 which, commission. Right. The 1776, 1776 commission. And which, then he wanted to get the 1619 project out of schools. Right. Was which like was his, rewriting uh, American history to be truthful in how it uh, plundered and oppressed it centers the experience of those who have been oppressed, like African Americans and, and mostly African Americans, but also Native Americans. So it, right, right, it's a, it's, right. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a refreshing perspective on American history that conservatives have lost their mind over. So basically, it was like, you know, it, it, it was like this anti, like, oh, you can't cancel Christopher Columbus, you can't cancel George uh, Washington. What's next, George Washington? And that yeah, kind of. and it was like the, the, this this thing, and he was mad about it, and Republicans were mad about it. He even like tweeted on Christopher Columbus Day, like how he was in, like he was an imperative part of of his 1776 commission because like he discovered America. 
which we most of us, I hope, listening know that that's not true. Um, yeah, so, like, I don't know what the future for the Republican Party is, but it's going to be a combination of Trump. Um, I, I, I hope in the 2024 uh, uh, primary I'm wrong and that some candidates with some actual good ideas like Mitt Romney um, could emerge. But He's I know too old to case. run at this point. So I, yeah, I think to, yeah, to close Larry out this Hogan. conversation, I think we should run through some potential 2024 candidates and give our opinions of how they might fare. So let's yeah. run through a couple. So I'll let you I, start. I, we'll start out with the, with, the, with the, the most Trumpy ones that come to mind. Ted Cruz. I think, um, you know, in the wake of him fleeing Texas for Cancun, that definitely hurt him. I think it may have hurt him um, because of his stance on election fraud. But again, I really don't know if that's true. It could have helped him within the, I think like general election would hurt him, but in the Republican primary in like a very Trumpy base, he could be seen as like one of the most like dying foot soldiers. But Ted Cruz probably will never win. He's not charismatic. Not a lot of people like him. Yeah, won't give him support. He's a loathsome a figure. He's a very, very like disingenuous. Yeah. yeah, like I, he ran before and he was close, but like th- this is also outside of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has the best chance to win. Um, if, he, if he announces officially he's running, he's going to win. It's it's over. Unless he goes to think, jail, which is possible yeah, because yeah. he is a, or, or if like Don Jr. I think would have lesser of a chance or Ivanka Trump would probably have lesser of a chance. Well, did you see Laura not, Trump is running in our home state of North Carolina? Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our state. We can do an episode next week about that. Um, but yeah, and then Josh Hawley, I would say the same thing. Um, give me another candidate. So Tom Cotton, Tom Cotton. We talking. You were talking about him before. He's kind of like Josh Hawley. They're just both awful. Um, like, I yeah. mean, Ron DeSantis is the one that comes to mind. And I think out of all the Republican governors, I think he's probably at the top of the list. Again, we talked about that CPAC too. poll, which was again take that with a massive grain of salt. But he was second in that poll. He is very Trumpian in a lot of ways. Um, he's a slightly more polished, younger version of Trump. Uh, I think that would do. He, I think he would do pretty well in the Republican primary, especially if Trump doesn't run. I think he might be among the top five front runners if Trump doesn't run. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think DeSantis stands a wonderful chance. Um, I'll also say I, I think you can't count out Marco Rubio to run again. Um, and he's had a he's had a busy week too. Um, he uh, tried to propose the Sunshine Act, which actually I really agree with, which is to make daylight savings time out, permanent. Yeah. And he also so came that, out as pro union. Yes, pro union for the for Amazon workforce in Alabama. So like he's had a pretty good week, and I and there there's a larger discussion about the Republican Party's move towards economic populism um, that we could get into at a later time. But yeah, Marco Rubio, I wouldn't discount uh, Larry Hogan. I think he's, will run. You can discount Larry Hogan. Larry I, Hogan I don't think he's going to stand a chance. I, I would I say, I would say, I, I would say that um, I'm trying to think of some like very obscure Republican. Rudy Christina. Giuliani would have a better chance of winning the Republican primary than oh. uh, than Larry Hogan or yeah. Charlie Baker or whatever moderate Republican governor you're going to you're about to say. So you think it's going to be like a, a fidelity test to Donnie if it's not yes. done? I think it's already playing out that way. I, but think, I still think there's like a faction, maybe like 20%, which will be That's outside. very generous. I, all our opinion polls have had Trump with like a 90% approval rating or higher among Republicans. 
Yeah, but then like, okay, so that let's say it's not Trump. Let's say it's let's say it's Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio was a Trump foot soldier, but he's kind of seen like as like more idea driven. He's seen as not as Trumpy, but Trumpy enough. Like if if it came down to Rubio and DeSantis, one is like the biggest Trumpy like you can think of, and the other is just kind of like you know I'm Trump when I need to be. Um, like I feel like that twenty percent who would probably support like a Larry Hogan could make a real difference if it comes down to those two, and then they all get in line and support Rubio. Like I I think they could pick the lesser of the two evils and like kind of you know. Although again, they had what sixteen candidates in twenty sixteen, and they picked the most evil person. I know that. I don't know how, much, I know I don't know how much faith I have in 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 the in the Republican primary, but I will say one more person we really should throw out there before we move on is Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor, ambassador to the UN under the Trump administration. She is the most flip-floppy person on Trump ever. You know, she, one day she, Trump's her great friend and we should cut him some slack for his role in the insurrection in our nation's capital. The next day he shouldn't be a part of the future of the party. I mean, there's a, there's like a thousand think pieces about Nikki Haley. Uh, in mainstream she's media and conservative un- media, she's the most like chameleon esque outside of Lindsey Graham. Um, per, uh, it must be a South Carolina thing. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, no, Nikki Haley, uh, I think had a really good shot, but she's been all over the place on Trump, and she just looks really disingenuous. I doubt she has any. Is that a negative in the in in, in the Republican primary? Is being disingenuous a deal? No, breaker? but being anti-Trump is being anti-disingenuous with Trump. Being she's kind of like Rubio. She's kind of like Rubio, I think, a little bit. Except she's been no she's Rubio has like been unscathed, and and Rubio like uh, Rubio, I feel like has been like the most unscathed about like this whole Trump thing. Like everyone else seems like such like a, a like a undying soldier, and like they sacrifice their values. But no one, I think, looks at Marco Rubio and like says, "Wow, this guy, you know, really sold out." They think I that do. way about Ted Cruz. I do too, and, and it's true he did. But like he's never like on the front lines with it, you know. He 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 really isn't. Um, but yeah, Nikki Haley, I think, has 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 mortgaged her future when she went back and forth, back and forth. Connor, give me a brief rundown on the uh, local um, state law that uh, you want to talk about. A state or local issue I want to talk about. So today we were almost we almost talked about uh, there was a bill. A similar bill that passed out of South Carolina la- a couple weeks ago. It could have been last week. Days just blur at this point. I, I don't have. I have no concept of time. It could have been a month ago. Could have been seven years ago. No. But um, so the Arkansas Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson signed one of the most restrictive abortion wow. bans um, in recent American history. Is it? What is this? What is this even? Recent. Okay, so she signed it recently. I don't know why I said in recent American history because that's just like. <laughs> signed it like a couple of days ago. Um, uh, it, it, the bill is, it, it bars abortions in all cases, and there's an exception for the life or the health of the mother or the fetus. There is no exception for rape and, or incest. It is probably mm-hmm. the most extreme piece of anti-abortion legislation that has ever been signed in the United States of America since Roe v. Wade in 1973. The supporters of the bill hope that it will be challenged in court and eventually make its way up to the Supreme Court, where they hope the newly minted 6-3 conservative majority in the Supreme Court will overturn or gut Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, I don't think it's going to get there. I think it'll be struck down very quick. In the lower courts, I don't think there's going to be any really disagreement. It blatantly violates, you know, the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade 
McClanahan, Parenthood versus Casey, and more recently in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt and June Medical Services. Um, it is clearly unconstitutional, and you know it's going to get struck down. It probably won't even go into effect. The bill also makes performing or attempting to perform an abortion a felony that could result in prison time, time or a fine of up to $100,000. Again, we've seen a wave of, uh, of very restrictive abortion legislations pass across the country in the aftermath of Amy Coney Barrett, Trump's Supreme Court nominee, being confirmed and replacing the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I hope it doesn't get to the Supreme Court at this point. I don't know if I, I, I don't know what they would do. It's terrifying. You know, the Supreme Court barely upheld, you know, uh, Holmes Health versus Hellerstedt, which is another landmark abortion decision last term and that required Roberts to write a concurring opinion where he, you know, had his own separate opinion where he joined the four liberal justices when Ginsburg was still with us. Um, and they barely upheld that by the narrowest margins. And it's arguable if you actually read his concurring opinion that he actually narrowed the scope of Planned Parenthood versus Casey and uh, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, which was decided in 2016 from for an identical case pretty much involving hospital admitting privileges. I'm droning on at this point. This, you know, very broad overview of this. It is a very stringent piece of anti-abortion legislation. It is the most recent in a, in a growing list in a lot of southern and midwestern states, and its supporters hope that it can eventually overturn Roe v. Wade and, and make abortion a state issue where states can decide. Uh, it's obviously horrifying. I think we talked about what the Republican Party was. And I think you look at the state level and you really get a good sense of where the parties are at. The Republican Party is the party of voter restrictions. It's a party of uh, being, uh, they would say pro-life, I would say anti-abortion, anti-women. And it's the party of passing. And we actually, for time, I'm assuming we, we're going to nix the South Dakota passed a bill that um, restricted transgender women's ability to compete in college sports, women's college sports or something along those lines. Maybe it's high school sports and women's sports in general. So they're anti-LGBTQ rights. They want to make it as hard for people to vote as possible. They are anti-choice. Um, and, you know, they obviously like complaining about cancel culture. The Democratic Party, on the other hand, and this is just a little bit of a tangent at this point, if you look at the state level, they are passing a lot of criminal justice reform measures. Virginia recently became the, most, the, the first southern state to abolish the death penalty. Illinois recently became the first state to get rid of the cash bail system and statewide. There are some cities that have done it across the country. Um, I believe New York City did it and some cities in California, but they've become the first state to do that. Uh, Virginia also legalized marijuana, so did New Jersey recently. Uh, obviously, there's also been, as there's been this push by Republicans to make it harder to vote in state legislatures in, in purple and blue states, they have tried to expand the right to vote. So they want to get more people to vote. They want criminal justice reform. And they also, I would say, generally want people to continue to wear masks. I know, and 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 they are more cautious about COVID. Right. I, don't know if, I would assume you'd agree with that. Yeah. No, I think that's a very good breakdown of of kind of what issues uh, states are focusing on, um, Democrat and Republican. Yeah, it's it's you know just another in the long list of of, of abortion um, laws that are happening in these states, which are really really terrifying and, and infringing on um on women's rights and 
Yeah, it's uh, creeping, I think, to the point where uh, hopefully it doesn't, but it, it looks like it's creeping to a larger Supreme Court case. And, you know, we'll, we'll see um, what happens when the time comes. It's a 6-3 Republican Supreme Court that has been more favorable to abortion. So it's, it, it's scary. Um, I think these were the fears that a lot of people, um, you know, immediately uh, concocted when RBG passed. Um, and hopefully it doesn't come to that. But yeah, just another draconian, horrible law passed in Arkansas. What I want to talk about on the global section, um, Sarah Everard was a young woman, 33, um, who lived in the United Kingdom, lived in um, Clapham, which is southern London. Um, she was murdered brutally. Um, I think it was this week um, by a, a British police officer. Um, for no reason um, other than she was a woman and it was a terrible horrendous grisly act and it has opened up a larger conversation um, in many circles about uh, how uncomfortable women feel just going out in public spaces and you know taking a walk at night or, or being alone like it's it's horrifying you know to that this is a reality for women and as men you know we can never fully understand it. Um, but like, it's just like, you know, taken for granted, like how, how comfortable and safe we feel just walking around, you know, a public park or taking a, a, a nice walk or just like going to a restaurant alone or a movie theater. Like we don't have to worry about that. And it's, it's, it, I, I feel, and I empathize so, so much with, with these, these women. And I, and I, and I emphasize so much with, with the family of, of Sarah Everard. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And then they had a vigil this weekend or yeah, it was this weekend or it might've been Friday. And they had a big, big candlelight vigil. They had a big protest. Um, and the British police were very, very abusive, and they tried to shut down the protests, and it landed. It led to to a clash, and it's it's interesting um, that the Conservative Party, the Tories in um, in England, are taking this as a chance not to address um, women's safety, not to address you know this horrible, horrible crime, but they are taking this opportunity. To pass the police crime sentencing and court bills, um, which was proposed by Home Secretary Prati Patel. This will be voted on Monday. And basically, it's trying to allow them to be able to curtail more protests. So basically, um, the Public Order Act of 1986, um, it allows police to control protests if it provokes like a serious disturbance. Now, it amends that act. So now it says that if it the serious disturbance is defined it can be defined if it infringes and it's too noisy so if a passerby is walking by like a climate change protest or a protest for women's rights or against brexit if i don't like what they're saying and i'm walking by a uh, the british police can interpret that as an excuse to shut down a protest, any level of noise. So if like I, my apartment is like two blocks down the road and I just saw the Extinction Rebellion, the climate change group, you know, walking by, I could say, call them and say, hey, this is disturbing me. This is this is noisy. And they couldn't they might not even be noisy. They might just, you know, people talking, clamoring. This gives them the excuse to control the protests, to arrest people. And it's it's insane and, 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 and horrible. 
Also on this bill, um, you know, we had the Black Lives Matter protests like in America, which were 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 necessary and an amazing show of unity for um, just years of years of inequity and and police brutality. Um, but they also had protests in England, and they threw a um, memorial of a slave trader in the United Kingdom into the water in Bristol. Which, why do you have a memorial of a slave trader in the first place? I mean, this is a larger conversation about uh, racist uh, memorials, and you know that can be very U.S. too. But they threw it in the river, and the maximum sentence for that is three months under current law. But this bill would raise it to 10 years. So if they, um, if they, if they cause any damage to a memorial, which is vaguely defined as like a building or structure with anything with com like uh, commemorative purposes, then they can be thrown in jail for 10 years, which is in, in, insane to me. Like the, 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 the Tory party is taking this as an excuse to curtail protests. They don't like the Extinction Rebellion protests. They don't like Trafalgar Square being blocked up for a minute. They don't like people standing outside of, of, of Parliament and screaming against Brexit. But that is just a horrible excuse. It was a terrible tragedy with Sarah Everard, and they're using this as a chance to push a more policing controlling agenda. They're trying to cancel, right? This is, this is not just a U.S. thing. They're trying to cancel people from protesting injustice, all the while, you know, railing about stupid things that that are canceled. So it's it's bass in that same hypocrisy. But but yeah, Connor, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, and I'm not as familiar with in general the United Kingdom politics or this specific bill, although it sounds horrible and like it's not what is needed in the moment, but. In terms of the wider discussion, I mean, I think we really take it for granted. And I, I know this, at least for myself, I can say this for myself, and I'm sure, and you, you voiced similar sentiments at the beginning of your uh, of your uh, little section, where, you know, this is something a, a lot of men take for granted. The ability to walk to, you know, your, uh, through a parking garage at night, back to your car, and, you know, the ability to take a jog at night without fear of, of, of violence, you know, the freedom where, or the ability to have your mind relatively at ease, you know, you know, somebody walking behind you, at least for me, I'd never seen that as like a threat. But if you get into a lot of the social media posts, a lot of women basically say that like sometimes, especially at night, when someone walks behind them, like they sometimes fear for their life. And it makes sense. It's just something that I think we don't have to think about. And it is such a travesty what happened to Sarah Everard, but and, and there are millions of stories of women who have experienced this type type of harassment and and worse for you know obviously centuries and millennia, and I think this is a a very needed dialogue that is opening up because of this, and I hope it spurs change. And I don't know exactly what the change is. I think it's probably more societal than anything we can do with a specific law, although it probably would help. I don't know the specific situations of. What you know, where she was, you know, where she was killed, but you know, obviously, sometimes you know, measures such as you know, having more lighting and more cameras, and and I know United Kingdom actually has a lot of security cameras, from what I've read. Sometimes that can help deter these types of attacks, but at the end of the day, it's a societal change, and it's it's how we raise our boys, and it's 
the onus should be on men not to do these shitty things. And, and I think a lot of people, unfortunately, especially, you know, in the past, but even today, tend to focus on what the woman can do to keep herself safe. And they don't focus enough on, you know, why this man or, 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 or men in general, mostly, you know, commit these heinous acts. And I think we need to recenter that conversation and we need to really undergo some very dramatic societal changes because everyone deserves to feel safe. And, and that should be a human right that, that we seek to, you know, make better for everyone and, you know, across the globe. Beautifully said, Connor. Um, and it's an important conversation. And I'm glad that we were able to have it. And, you know, it does take it takes a village and it's something that we need to be having you know, at our own dinner tables with our family. It's something when we raise, raised uh, young boys, it's, it's the onus should be on that. But that will actually conclude the Green New Podcast um, for today's episode. Um, I think we had some really good conversations, Con, today. Um, thank you for joining me. Um, we'll be back next weekend with our third episode. Um, you can uh, follow us uh, at the Green New Podcast on Twitter. Um, Con, do you have anything you want to plug? Um, I don't really have any specific plugs. I think I did this last week, and I don't want to plug the same thing every week. Well, first of all, um, our friend, his girlfriend's brother was in, in, in a motorcycle accident, I think, uh, and he set up a GoFundMe page. You know more about the details of this, and I'm assuming you're also going to plug this on the pod, um, but... It would be great if people could donate or retweet. Uh, you've retweeted it. Um, I've retweeted it. A lot of our friends have retweeted it. You know, uh, I, 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 our podcast should also retweet it, even though I know we don't have that many followers at this point. Yeah, but that would be good just to get people to see it. Um, you know, it would be great to donate and and, and to to spread the word on that. Um, so if you important. if you want to donate and find that link, um, you can follow me on Instagram at the real Patrick Green, like the color ninety eight. And I have that link in my bio. So you can donate to that. Um, they need to cover a lot of medical expenses. It was a near fatal crash. He's in our thoughts and prayers. It was a, hopefully he will make a full recovery and, and the money could really help towards that. So definitely, if you can, um, donate. But yes, that'll do it um, for the Green New Podcast. Um, hope you enjoyed this conversation. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Bye.